0: We're back in 1st John, and it's good to be back in 1st John and get into the text of God's Word. Two years ago, I had the uh, privilege of leading a study tour from our church. Uh, It was a study tour of the steps of Paul. And so we uh, went to places that the Apostle Paul had established churches and had ministered. So we were primarily in the country of Greece We went to Philippi, we went to Corinth, we went to some of those places. But one of the stops that we made was uh, at the city of Ephesus, the ancient city of Ephesus, which was one of the great cities of the ancient world. And uh, there's a really large archaeological dig there where they've uncovered much of the city. And now it's a major tourist spot. If you go on a tour of the Greek Isles, some people do that, you know, and go island hopping, you're going to go, I'm sure, to Ephesus. Huge boats pull into the port, and thousands of people get out every day, and they tour through the city. It's quite a sight. So we went, and we uh, got on our bus, and we drove out to the ancient city, and, you know, big excitement. Here we are. We're about to see Ephesus. You know, there's a book of the Bible called Ephesians. Did you know that? And this is, you know, who, where the church was, and and so we're excited, and we get off of the of the bus, and like many tourist places, maybe that you've seen, wherever tourists gather, you have all these little shops and little you know uh, businesses that are selling little touristy things. And sure enough, we get off the off the bus, and there at the entrance to the whole place is all of these shops and selling this, that, and the other. Well, one of the shops I felt like really deserved a photograph. And here it is. (laughs) At this store, you have the privilege of buying genuine fake watches. I thought that was rather funny. Genuine fake watches. Now... What's ironic about this, biblically and theologically, is that if, if you know about the story of the church at uh, Ephesus, this is where John pastored. This is the, the same general area that, that John writes the letter of 1 John to. It is also the church that Jesus, in, in Revelation 2, has something to say about these Christians at Ephesus, and here's what he says. He says, you know, you do this well, you do this well, you do this well, but... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The church at Ephesus, they, they had the form right, but down in their hearts, Jesus says, I know where your heart is at, and your heart is no longer primarily for me. So they looked like good Christians on the outside, but Jesus knew the inside. And there, uh, they were not genuine. It's much like these genuine fake watches. Which, of course, even in any major city, even in downtown Chicago, you can go there and there are people that are selling all of these watches. Right? I remember when I was in high school, we went to like D.C. or somewhere, and I bought a Gucci watch for like $9. And these watches, you know, they'll say Rolex on them. Right? They look like a Rolex. They keep time They're shaped like a Rolex, but they're only $10. And what do we know about that? It's not a Rolex, right? It looks like the real thing, but it's not. It is a genuine, fake Rolex. And in the church that John is writing to, and really every church, ours included, there are always genuine, fake Christians, or at least professing Christians. They say that they're Christians, They look like they're Christians, but like the Rolex and the Gucci in downtown Chicago and in in Ephesus, not the real thing. And John has written this letter to help us understand what does the real thing look like. And he's urging us not to look at false indications of whether or not we're genuinely saved, but to make sure that we're looking at the right ones. And there are right ones that are intended to reassure us that, yes, we are under the grace of God. He writes that in chapter 5. I write these things to you so that you may know that you are, that you are saved. So here we are again. We're in the final stretch of 1 John. And one of the challenges later in the book as we, as we preach and teach through 1 John is that John's argumentation is circular, So he comes back to the same things over and over again. Now we can ask the question, why does he repeat himself so much? And uh, I think one of the reasons at least is that when things are repeated, we tend to get them, don't we? And so we say things over and over and over and over and over again. And by doing that, it kind of impresses it upon our our hearts. And so we're getting that as well as we teach through it. Because some of these themes, he comes back to again and again. How can I know that I'm saved? If I walk in darkness morally, I can claim to be a Christian, but I am not. And if I uh, claim to be a Christian, but I do not have a life marked by love, then I am not. And if I claim to be a Christian and I deny that Jesus is the Son of God, then I am not a Christian. So these are things that he comes back to, the moral test, the social test, the doctrinal test, over and over and over again. And he does that in the passage that we have before us. So what I want to do this weekend is, I'm going to read it, make some comments about what he's done, what what he's saying here. But there is a golden nugget verse here. That I think might become some of your favorite, this might become one of your favorite verses in all the Bible. And so I just want to sit on that, really, and make that most of our teaching this weekend. So let me read the text. It's 1 John 4, and we begin in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. So there we have, basically, here's how we know that we are, that we are Christians, genuinely. We're going to sit on verses 17 and 18, but a few comments about these because you hear those same recurring themes that we've seen over and over here in 1 John. How do we know that we abide in God? And John gives objective evidence and subjective evidence for whether or not we are genuinely saved. He begins with the subjective. He says that we know that we abide in God if we have his spirit. Do you see that? The Holy Spirit is an indication that I am a child of God. Now that, of course, begs the question, well, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? Right? And it might mean here, he may be referring to some of what we know from Scripture, some of these more miraculous evidences of the Holy Spirit that we see in the book of Acts. Uh, But here's what we can know, is that... There are evidences that we have the Spirit that are not extra, they are not these extraordinary evidences. There are some people that they they always want to go for that amazing extraordinary evidence. That's the one way that we can know that we have the Holy Spirit. Like many people this last week, you know, they had the extra large moon this last week. Did you guys hear about that? It was like closer than it normally is, and won't be that way again for a thousand years or whatever. So they urged everyone to go out and look at the moon. And some of you howled, I hear uh and so we go out and we look at the moon because it's this extraordinary moon many people do that but then they don't look at the mo- the normal moon ever again similarly when it comes to the holy spirit there are some people that are only oriented toward the extraordinary the every once in a while thing that god does by his spirit and miss the everyday normal indications that we have the holy spirit now what are those The Bible calls them the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, here they are. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. How do I know I have the Holy Spirit? I look at that list and I say, Are those evidenced in my life? Do I have peace? Am I, am I more under control because I have the Holy Spirit? These are indications that we have God's Spirit in us. Now, one of the realities about that is that they are, they're pretty subjective, aren't they? Like, I can look at that and I go, well, do I have peace? Most of the time. Most of the time. Am I gentle? Most of the time, I think. You know, it's kind of hard to... Exactly, say whether those are enough evidenced in me to indicate that I am a Christian. They are subjective. So, John balances that then with the objective. And the objective we find here to be a propositional objective truth that must be believed. Verse 15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. So, there we have the gospel who Jesus was, what he did on the cross. That must be believed in. That is not subjective, that is objective. And so we see then the marrying of the objective and the subjective, this partnership where both go together, and both are critical. Because if I simply have wonderful experiences that I point to subjectively, where I have, I've wept because of God, and I've gone to meetings, and I've had these amazing experiences... But I do not confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I am not saved. I am merely an enthusiast. At the same time, if I, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, yes, that's me entirely. But everybody knows you to be a hard and unloving man. What does that say about our claim to be a follower of Jesus? John says it makes it spurious. Because it is both of those. It is belief in Christ... Whereby I receive the Holy Spirit who changes me. And that change is part of the reassurance that I have that I am under the grace of God. It is not what saves me, it is the byproduct of the Spirit and the gospel which saves me. Do you see the difference? Very important. I don't want you leaving here thinking you gotta I've got to go find peace or I'm not saved. No. Find Jesus and no peace. Now, there is one sign that is more important than any else, and we find that here, and what is it? What's the greatest indication that we're a Christian? No trick question here. These three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of them is love. Okay? So if you have to pick one fruit of the Spirit that is an evidence of God working in my life, that I am saved, it is agape. It is Love. And we find John reemphasizing this, and he does so by repeating what he says in chapter 4, verse 8, regarding the character of God, that God is love. And we did an entire message on this a few weeks ago, this stunning and amazing reality that God is in his very... Uh, Essence, in in all that he does, if there is a defining quality of what God is like, it is that he is love. Everything that he does, he is doing for the good and joy of another. And in this, because God is eternal, his love is eternal. It is God is love, not God was love or God can be love or God might be love. It is that God is love. Think of that. The God, almighty God is defining himself as loving. That's a stunning thought. And is the basis of everything that John is saying here is that God is love. And so then we see here that like father, like son, if we are children of God and we are children of a God who is love, we will reflect the loving nature of God in our life. First of all, by loving God. And secondly, by loving our neighbor. The two great commandments, right? which now we discover are not simply two great commandments, but two essential qualities of a genuine Christian. Is that we love God and we love others, which we, of course, do not do perfectly. We do this very imperfectly. But John, So John is not saying that we have to be flawless in our love, but the presence of love must be there. So to ask the question then, those that know you, that really know you, and you said, hey, do you see love in my life? If they go, mm, I don't think so. What does that indicate? Love. John keeps going back to love over and over again. God's love for us, our love for him, our love for one another. Now in that, I do not believe that he is Uh, Pollyannish in his perspective of what it means to be a part of a church You could say this wow if this is the way it is to be around christians Then it would be love 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 all the time And it would just be so fantastic because everybody would always treat me in such an endearing kind sort of way To be a part of a church must be like the greatest thing ever always utopic wonderful blissful existence amongst god's people right wrong Okay wrong And even John recognized that. That's why he writes in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the the idea here is not because of our sin nature and because of the fall, it's not that the church is a blissful, utopic existence. Rather, it is broken people being restored by the Spirit to loving one another the way that God has loved us in Christ. And there is the presence of that, although imperfectly, there is the presence and there must be. Which brings us now to verse 18. And this is our focus today. Again, a verse I think might become one of your favorite verses in all the Bible. Here is what it says. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Is there a struggle more central to being human than fear? We are a fearful people, and we have lots to be afraid of, don't we? We fear rejection, poverty, ridicule, cancer, unemployment, Birthdays, old age, pain, heights, public speaking, small places, snakes, marriage, divorce, political turmoil, tax increases, things that go bump in the night, terrorist attacks, being alone, crowds, and really almost anything else we can be afraid of. In fact, take a moment right now and think about what is the thing that you're like most afraid of. Okay, we're going to say it all out loud together at once. You ready? One, two, three. Apparently a lot of you are afraid of speaking. (laughs) Let's try that again. One, two, three. Now don't we feel better? It's kind of like a group session here. Dealing with our fears. To acknowledge that I have a fear, we all do. At our service last night, there was a guy like over here, it was just a male voice, uh, that said mice. (laughs) I was like... I don't know, but uh, of all the things that we fear, I think the biggest thing we fear is death, isn't it? Now maybe some of you said that, I don't know, it was sort of a mumbo jumbo sound, but we fear death. We've always feared death, and not only do we fear the experience of death, like what's that like, we also fear what is on the other side of the grave. What is that experience like? The uncertainty of it, sort of the darkness of it. Uh, will I exist on the other side of death? Will I have any memory of my loved ones on the other side of death? Will I be in pain on the other side of death? Is it, is it nothingness like the secular human, humanists would want us to believe? Is it uh, nirvana or reincarnation like uh, the Hindus would want us to believe? Or is it some other thing uh, like some other religion wants to believe? I'll tell you what the Christian teaching is on death. It's this. That on the other side of the grave, there are two destinies that all human beings are facing. On the one hand, there is eternal life. This is a gift from God. That destiny includes what Jesus called paradise. It includes being with God. It's described as beauty, glory, and joy. It is eternal life. It is life without end. It is experiencing the goodness and the greatness of God for all eternity eternal life. The other, the other destiny is the opposite of that one. If this is life, the other one is death. If this is brightness and glory and beauty and joy, this one is uh, darkness and suffering and pain. It is hell. Two destinies. We are facing that future with uncertainty. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, don't fear the person who can take your life physically. Fear him who can destroy your soul eternally. That's the one that you need to fear. And we find John here then continuing to draw contrasts. He's done that throughout the book. Light, darkness. Life, death. Truth, falsehood. Love, hate. And here we have another contrast. Love and fear. He says here that fear and love cannot coexist. They are like light and darkness. Where fear is, love is not. Where love is, fear is not. They're not in there together. They are mutually exclusive. And for those of us who struggle with fear, I I wonder if we realize that the solution to fear is love. Love. That's what John is saying here. Perfect love casts out fear. And it has everything to do, our today fear has everything to do with our tomorrow fear. Now let's get into this. How does this work? How does love cast out fear? So we begin by, uh, and I want you to realize that this is exactly what John is saying. Look at the strength of the second clause there. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear. The Greek word there for cast out, it's, it, it means to hurl, okay? To throw. It's like the old westerns where the uh, the, the, the little saloon in the little western town, uh, the, the bad guy goes walking into the saloon. And uh, while he's in there, he says something bad about the owner's wife or about the sheriff or about the strongest guy in the room, whatever it is. And the next scene in the western, you know, is the the little door's Fling open and out the guy flies right, landing in a heap in the dusty main street. What was he was he was cast out right? He was thrown out, and that's the picture of the word. Is that fear? When it comes to fear and love, they don't they they, they don't coexist in the saloon. Love throws fear out. Was that good? Okay. How does it do that? Well, John explains it this way, that all human fear is ultimately eschatological. Now, that's a big doctrinal word. Eschatology is the study of last things, future things. And Paul, or John says that all fear that we experience indirectly has to do with our ultimate fear of punishment someday. Someday. He says in verse 18, fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So I may have a fear about mice or some other thing, but it is indirectly related to an ultimate fear about what will happen to me someday. My uncertainty about my my destiny. So fear feeds on on my uncertainty and fear of punishment and brings fear into my life today. Love, on the other hand, perfect love, casts out fear because it is confident about its ultimate destiny. Okay? Maybe look at it this way. It's, it's like the, the rivers uh, and the streams of North America. If you've ever looked at a map, you've got all these tributaries and little rivers and all of that. But they're all going the same direction, basically, right? Where are they all heading towards? Initially, they head towards... See, last night didn't know this either. You need to get out more, people. They, they generally head towards the Mississippi River. And here's a big test. Where does the Mississippi River head towards? The golf course. No. (laughs) The Gulf of Mexico. G-U-L-F. So we have all of these streams and creeks and all that that are eventually flowing somewhere. It's kind of like that in in the sense that I may have a fear. I have a little Calumet River fear. Right? It appears to me that it's right here, but really it's about where it's eventually going, which is the Gulf of Mexico. And I may have a bigger fear, the Ohio River level fear, but it really is about that, that's all heading somewhere. It's all flowing somewhere. Our fears are like that. It may appear to me that it's about the Little Calumet River, but it's really about the Gulf of Mexico. It's really about that, what's going to happen eventually. And what love does, perfect love casts out fear is love gives me confidence about what is ultimate for me. I know by the love of God and because of the love of God that that love will never fail me and that ultimately my big issues and fears are resolved in the eternal character of a loving God who loved me in Christ. And because I am confident about the ultimate, the temporary fears are hurled out. Perfect love casts out fear because I know where the whole thing is going and it's not for me as a Christian going to a Gulf of Mexico of punishment it's not the Gulf of hell it's the Gulf of heaven and so now I don't worry about the Little Calumet River issue so much because I know what the destiny is I could try that again did you get that some of you're like I'm going home and looking at a map I don't know if that's exactly right because I think the Little Calumet River actually flows into Lake Michigan which goes up into the Atlantic I'll see you after the service, (laughs) along with a few large men in our church. Okay, Uh, (laughs) we'll talk about fear. Uh, Second point in this is that then God's love assures us that our future fears are misleading. Why? He will always love us. He will always love us. Again, verse 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. God is love. He just has repeated that. God's love is eternal because God is eternal. It is unchanging. It is unending. It is not fickle. God's love is not fickle. Human love is fickle. People divorce one another. Why? I don't love her anymore. I used to love her, but now I don't. My love has changed. We see that all the time. It is sad. It is painful. Uh, Human love, how fickle and changing and wishy-washy it is. But God's love is not that way. His word is his word. His love is unending. His love is also not circumstantial. Human love is circumstantial, isn't it? There are things that can happen that keep us from experiencing love with one another. For example, a soldier goes to war. Leaves loved ones here, goes to Afghanistan. Serves a tour there for a year or something like that. For that year, those loved ones are not experiencing love with one another which is why we love these reunions so much, right? You see them on TV where the little girl gets picked to throw out the first pitch at the ball game and she rears back and she throws it into the catcher who catches it and pulls off the mask and it's daddy back from Afghanistan. And the whole stadium's like, you know, and the newscaster's showing it there, everyone's crying. Why does it touch us so much? Because we recognize that human love is circumstantial. And when things like that or even death itself separate us from the experience of loving one another. But God's love is not like that. He is not bound by circumstance. He is sovereign over circumstance. He is ruling and reigning providentially in every matter in this universe. He is not surprised by things that happen. There's no chance that maybe something will unexpectedly happen to God that will keep him from loving those that he loves. He is God. And that is why there is neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things future, nor anything in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. Right? So, and especially that death one is what John is getting at. Because, again, our fears, they're all flowing into the gulf of heaven or the gulf of hell. And I fear, I fear presently related to whether or not I understand what is awaiting me on the other side of the grave. And because death cannot separate me from the love of God, it means that that love casts out my fears presently and my fears futurely because his love is present and his love is future, guaranteed. Perfect love casts out fear. How does God communicate that love to us. You might be here going, ah, it sounds good, but how can I know that God loves me in the way that you're d- describing? God has two ways that he has communicated this to us. One is the cross, and secondly are his promises to always love us. This is the logic of Romans 5.8 and Romans 8.32, two very famous verses from the book of Romans. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What we find Paul doing in both of these verses is he is pointing to what God did for us in Christ at Calvary. In the first case, if God loved us while we were his enemies, why now do we think that he won't love us as his children? Okay, Do you get the logic of that? How much more now he loves us as his children? The cross, Jesus died while we were still his enemies. We hated him. We were in rebellion against him. Naturally, we would never want to embrace Christ as Savior or God as God. But now we see in the cross how God has loved us. And by his spirit, it opens our hearts to believe in Jesus. And that transforms us now. We receive his love. But it was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. And we look, secondly, Romans eight thirty two, If God was even willing to give his son, did not spare his own son, the most precious valued person into God the Father would be his son. And if God was not willing if to spare even his son in order to accomplish our salvation, how can we doubt his goodness to us? That he will graciously give us all things. If he gave his son, he must be willing and able to give us much lesser things, indeed, our salvation and eternal life. So if we realize then that these actions of God flow from an absolute, covenantal, loving commitment... To love us forever, not only do we not fear eternal punishment, because all fear is future, we will not dread anything else either. So you might be here and say, well, you know what, I know I'm going to heaven, but man, my boss is driving me crazy. I'm afraid he's going to fire me. And what happens to me if I'm unemployed? And what happens to me next? I don't know. I'm afraid of what is going to happen. Perfect love casts out fear as I come to understand God's eternal love for me and the promises that he has made to meet all of my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, and the fact that ultimately my big issue is that when I die, I want to know what's going to happen to me on the other side and that God's love is going to be there for me and I have eternal life that is as secure as God is glorious. Now my boss isn't so scary, right? I think about that in the little saloon doors of my heart. (laughs) Out comes my fear in a heap in the dusty main street of of the western town. So what should we do with our fears? Why don't you try this? think of what you are actually afraid of not mice and snakes but maybe betrayal a life without love rejection loneliness whatever health concern whatever it might be imagine that you could go to the very foot of the cross and to look up on that cross and there is Jesus And you see him in all of his struggle. You see him in all of his sweat. You see the stripes on his back, the blood coming from his hands and his feet. You see him struggling on that cross to breathe. And you look at the whole scene and you have an opportunity to ask Jesus anything. And you say, Jesus, why are you doing this for me? Why are you bearing my guilt? You are the Holy One of God. Why, Jesus? Why? And he looks down at you and he says, because I love you. What does that do to your fear? What are you afraid of, Christian? Perfect love casts out fear. And finally, God's love produces, therefore, a fearless confidence a fearless confidence. John wants us to live fearlessly, fearlessly, confident in the love of God. The Bible wants us and calls us to live fearlessly. If God is for us, who can be against us? I love that verse. Uh, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Many promises in verses like this that Call us not to be, like so many people in our culture, afraid of the stock market and afraid of the terrorists and afraid of uh, local economy and afraid of uh, the, the doctor and afraid of... Go on through the list of things that we get fearful about. Why should Christians be fearful of these things? God loves us. He has every resource to meet our needs. And the call of the Bible is not to respond to trial and trouble in fear, but rather in Trust. I love Psalm 56 3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Now that's a comforting verse, but what does it actually mean to put my trust in God? What am I trusting in? I am trusting in His promises. I am trusting in his ability to meet my needs. I am trusting in the fact that God is sovereign over the circumstances of my life and that this trial is not a surprise to him. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you no matter what. He will always love me. Fear doubts the love of God. When I am afraid, I am doubting that God can actually meet my needs. Fear acts as if God isn't even there. Now, over the next 20 years, I do not know how many sermon illustrations that I am going to derive from my daughter, Kira Lee. I do not know. But here's what I can tell you. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. I've been a dad now for three weeks and pretty much got it figured out. So if any of you need advice on the matter, I'd be happy to help you. I'm preparing to write a book on fatherhood. Yeah. So, uh, three weeks. I remember our first night. You know, you get a couple days at the, at the hospital, which is great, because you're just, you know, at least we were just bewildered by the whole experience, and you don't know what to do and how to care and all the rest. So, uh, you've got a whole nursing staff at your disposal uh, to uh, come at your beck and call. they got a little button on the bed. You push the button. And in the nurse runs. Obamacare needs that. I just like to say we should all have a button at home. We push a button, in comes the nurse at our beck and call. It was wonderful. So we really, for the first two days, it was was fine. uh, Because any question we had, we asked the medical staff. Doctors are checking in all the time. We took her home. And now we are on our own with this little girl. And I remember we, we put her down, you know, first time at night, and we had the, 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 the still the cradle is right by the bed, and you know, we, we brought her home, I remember we, we actually showed her around the house, we said, this is the kitchen, and this is the dining room, this is your bedroom, we just had fun with it, you know, bringing first child home. So we put her down uh, for the night, and, and we got in bed, you know, and it's like, wow, here we are, we We're like a family now, you know. And it wasn't very long before we heard, eh, off come the covers, we jump out of bed. Is she okay? Is she breathing? What was that sound about? There's no button to push here, right? She seems to be breathing, everything seems to be okay. Okay. So we go back to bed, and now our hearts are like, Poof. we're responsible for this child. It's a frightening thing. We didn't know her sounds at first, but after three weeks, we're starting to learn her sounds. She has sounds like this, and this is the way that it goes. There's a pattern with this girl. She starts off with little snorts and noises. So she'll do, she'll do like this. She'll go, eh. And then, like, it could be a minute. Eh. But then they start coming in more rapid uh, progression. So it becomes more like, eh, 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 like that. And that means it's ramping up, you know. It's a sign of things to come. Then she begins to wail her arms like this. She's a thrasher. This girl's a, th- we call her our little thrasher because she starts doing like this number, like this. And then she combines them all so that it's like, eh, eh, eh. And then the final nuclear level is when it's all, it all comes together, yeah! And I will tell you, I showed you a picture last week of, of angelic Kiralee. There is a Darth Kiralee in there as well. <laughs> And I've seen this now for three weeks, and I have, I've often thought to myself as, you know, here we are. Here, here she is, right? I am there. Mom is there. We have everything she needs. I mean, there are every little doodad device that Babies are Us sells, it's there in the house. We've got shakers and rockers and rollers and all these things. We've got diapers, we've, I mean, there is nothing that this girl could possibly need. And I thought to myself, why are you crying? You know, (laughs) daddy love you. Daddy right here. (laughs) You know, why are you crying? It's illogical, her crying. And I thought to myself, if She could even, if I could take one drop of the love that we have for this little girl and like in a little uh, dropper and just drop, take a little love out of my heart and drop it down into her heart. If she could know just a little bit of how committed we are to meeting her needs and loving her and all the things that we have ready to roll out to meet any need that she has in the midst of her thrashing and crying and eh, eh, all of that. If only she knew how much we loved her. What that would do with the apparent fears that she is having as a child. And what a picture that is, I think, for us as God's children. We're all, eh, eh. (laughs) And God in heaven must look down on us and think to himself, if only they knew how much I love them. If only they knew I am right here with them. If only they knew all the resources I have to come and to meet any need. If only a little drop of the love that I have could be dropped into their hearts, how their fears would be alleviated. And some of us here today, you know, you're at a level in something in your life. You're at the eh level. You know, you come to the prayer meetings and you're like, please pray about eh. I'm concerned about eh. You talk with you, you hear eh. Some of you are dealing with things and you're kind of like at this level, right? Eh. And some of you are fully engulfed. And you've come to church and you wonder, does God have something to say? Indeed, he does. What we need to realize is that perfect love casts out fear. And God's love for us is love in its fullness and love in its perfection. God loves you, friend. And if we understood how much he loves us, how we would live differently and confidently and fearlessly, In a broken world, filled with people, and filled with phobias. So I wonder, what are you afraid of? And might not the reassurance of the love of God, that little drop in your heart, maybe through this message today, cast out the fears that you're dealing with. Perfect love casts out fear. May we live boldly in a fearful world, confident in the love of God. Amen. Would you stand with me for prayer?